mask, gloves, soap, scrubs, tick tock, grub, hub, twings, jocks, bears, cubs, zoom is the new club, six feet, no hugs, still beat these mugs, sick beat, cut a rug, Joe Exotic is a thug. Hi everyone, thanks for listening to the June 6th ASF Weekly Science Podcast. Today's podcast will be over COVID, the, the gift that keeps on giving. Now, it's already June, and there hasn't been a podcast yet about COVID. Well, I mentioned in my INSAR summary that there were very early research recently conducted about some kids who were resilient to psychological stress effects during the pandemic. Now, was it because they preferred being at home? After the initial change in routine, which was, of course, a disaster, did they get settled in a new routine more easily? Or were the social pressures of school relieved? Was it a fluke? Well, maybe. But certainly, to be clear, it was not all kids with autism that were resilient. It was probably a subgroup that we need to understand better because it's June and we're in somewhat of a surge and who knows about future pandemics. Now, there was a study about this resiliency or different responses to mental health challenges that was recently published by our friends up north, the Canadians. They use the PON Network or Province of Ontario Neurodevelopmental Network. It's a longitudinal study which collects information from a group of kids with neurodevelopmental disorders, not just autism, but also ADHD, ASD, intellectual disability, and other neurodevelopmental disorders, including those caused by rare genetic syndromes like Fragile X and Rett. Now, because they're in constant contact with these families, they were able to keep in touch with about 230 of them, of course, mostly boys, and they used something called the Crisis Afar questionnaire. The survey was given to everyone, but the data that was published was just around families with ASD. The Crisis Afar was a survey designed to collect information around the pandemic, and it could possibly be used in other emergency situations as well in the future, and do it in a standardized way. They looked at measures including anxiety and mental health, both internalizing, like depression and anxiety, and externalizing, like irritability and ADHD, as well as general stress questions and, of course, questions about the loss of a job, financial or food insecurity, and, of course, someone having COVID in their own household. The scientists looked across the data as a whole and used the computer to categorize those who had some deterioration in mental health versus those that stayed the same. For those that stayed the same or were a bit resilient, what factors were behind that? So out of 230 families, 141 or most of them deteriorated, but 89 of them showed unchanged symptoms in mood, anxiety, OCD, irritability, inattention, or hyperactivity. So what was going on? Well, they looked at who was receiving mental health services and they stated, and this is the authors, and I quote them here, quote, autistic children with higher pre-pandemic internalizing systems were particularly vulnerable, while parental factors like worse parental mental health and parental COVID-related stress were also strongly associated with greater deterioration. System and societal factors, including material deprivation and loss of medical care and academic supports contributed to deterioration in mental health, unquote. Now, a pediatrician should be aware and advocate for opportunities for intervention at individual families and systems levels. What can the pediatrician or other care provider do? Well, they can address parental mental health if they notice it, identify internalizing system in kids, because it can make things worse, not just during this pandemic, but future pandemics. And most importantly, support community-wide interventions that target family wellness, decrease stress, 
and prevent material deprivation like clothing and food. And we know autism families had a huge food insecurity issue during the pandemic and probably continue to. These things may promote resiliency to pandemic changes in mental health. Interestingly, a study with a more homogenous group, boys only, who also exhibited severe and challenging behaviors like self-injury, all showed an increase in self-injurious behavior using the Crisis Afar survey, along with increased problems sleeping. So another major question, one that ASF is funding, what was going on in the clinics to help diagnosis during the peak of the pandemic? We know kids needed assessments for ASD. I mean, they need them all the time. But during the pandemic, how are they getting them? Now, nowadays, you can pretty much find a hybrid or telehealth appointment in addition to in-person assessments. A lot of people use telehealth and they like it. Is it feasible? Do parents approve? Is it accurate? Should we keep it up? Well, the resounding opinion of clinicians and apparently family members, as I'll discuss, is yes. In California, Catherine Stavropoulos, together with Jan Blatcher at UC Riverside, were one of the many clinics having to figure out how to switch from all in-person to all online. In addition to coming up with a new protocol, which I'll describe in a minute, they looked at the social validity of both the process and the results, and the results being the written report with parents. Did the parents agree with the report? Did they like the process? Let's find out. So instead of an ADOS, they used something a lot of other clinicians were using as well. It's called the Tele-ASD Kids or the Tele-ASD Peds. Now, which version depends on verbal abilities and age. The Peds is given to kids up to three years and then the kids after age three. It was actually validated right before the March 2020 shutdown at Vanderbilt. And some activities involved in the Tele-ASD Kids and Peds are things that involved a caregiver. Some did not, depending, of course, on the age and also the activities that were done. So the activities that were done over Zoom or Skype or FaceTime were ones that allow the clinician to look at things like socially directed speech, eye contact, and they all used a Likert scale. In order to elicit these things, they engaged in activities like joint play, asked to look at cause and effect, Depending on the age of the kids, they asked questions about friends, other relationships, they asked about loneliness, they asked the kids to describe a picture over Zoom, and asked them to demonstrate a task over Zoom. It is shorter than the ADOS, and clinicians still need training to become reliable on it. If you're a clinician interested in it, then Google Tele-ASD-PEDS. This study even added a few more items from the usual ADOS, but the Tele-ASD Peds and Kids has been used by itself by other clinicians, so you don't have to add these extra items. The group also conducted cognitive assessments, which have been tricky in the past, and frankly, even after the study, have not been officially validated. There were two different cognitive tests, both called the Wexler, and it depended on the age, which version they got. Now, the clinician said they were able to diagnose intellectual disability using an online version. And they also had some parents fill out the forms like the social responsiveness scale. First thing, there were cases where they needed to actually schedule a reevaluation because the diagnosis wasn't so clear. Everyone got results for a diagnostic impression, and most of them got recommendations about school services or specific services like speech therapy or occupational therapy. What did parents think? Well, while 93% were happy with the process, 
Many people wish still they would have been able to be in person. They were happy with what they got because there was no alternative, but there were some people that preferred in person. As far as the feedback goes, well, here's the thing. Not everyone answered the feedback questions, but of those that did, they all liked it and planned to share those reports with either the school, the teacher, the therapist, or their primary doctor. They didn't plan on sharing it with the DDS in California or with an insurance company. These findings do show that at least some telehealth diagnostic services are appreciated by families and the reports do get used. It's possible that it can access families who would otherwise have not gotten services or an evaluation. I will note that most people spoke English in their house, but most of the participants were also Hispanic or Latinx and almost half were near the poverty line at less than $50,000 a year of income. So one thing that was kind of a glitch was the technology issue. Does everyone have accessibility to Zoom or other teleconference technology? Well, 86% said they did. What about the other 14%? That's something to think about. Another study out of Indiana, this, this is another study, looked specifically at provider and caregiver satisfaction with these visits. On average, parents and clinicians seem to be satisfied with their telehealth visit. But psychologists and pediatrician satisfaction was not related to caregiver satisfaction. That sounds ominous, right? What could be going on? What, what's the disparity? Well, the provider satisfaction was related to whether or not the provider was able to make a diagnostic determination. If they could, they were satisfied. If they couldn't, they were less satisfied. Remember, in the California study, there were some cases where they had to get an in-person evaluation or a re-evaluation. That would probably be a low satisfaction experience. If the behaviors were obvious, the providers seemed to be more satisfied with the process and satisfied with telehealth because they seemed to be able to be more satisfied that they made an accurate diagnosis. Technical and setup difficulties also played a role. The same with parents. If the behaviors were more severe and they got the diagnosis, then they were satisfied. Caregivers were also more satisfied with providers who were certain about the diagnosis. Also, they were more satisfied if they wanted to tell a health diagnosis in the first place and got one. But caregiver satisfaction wasn't related to race, age, ethnicity, household income, insurance, provider preference, or technical and setup difficulties. They may use this information in the future to help triage families into telehealth evaluation, and it should spark funding for clinics and hospitals to fund telehealth training to help clinicians learn, get trained, have access to the internet, and give options to families. I think there's always going to be individuals who are going to need an in-person evaluation. So that was telehealth for diagnosis. What about telepsychiatry? This is specific for psychiatric care over video conference, and in fact, it's been done since the 60s. Think video screens or, or TV screens, not computers, and Betamax tapes, not video cameras. A collaborative study across the U.S. looked at five psychiatric clinics and counted the number of visits that were scheduled versus completed both before the pandemic and after the pandemic. So at the start of 2020, only two sites were doing telepsychiatry. And within those two sites, not that many. After the lockdown, pretty much that's all all the five sites did at all. Very few visits were ever done in person. 
Now, what was interesting was that there were more completed visits via telepsychiatry versus in-person visits. On one hand, this might be great for patients. Appointments can be more frequent and time and costs were eliminated. On the other hand, there's really no long-term efficacy studies for these visits. And it's unclear about the burden that psychiatrists are given seeing they're seeing more patients in the same amount of time. I mean, they saw more patients versus telepsychiatry. So they might be a little bit overwhelmed. They agree that a hybrid model may be most cost-effective, safe, and efficient. And we clearly need more training to make sure that a hybrid model, in addition to a telehealth model, is acceptable to clinicians. But it may be possible. So the results so far, keep on keeping on with telehealth and telepsychiatry. But in five words, hybrid is the most helpful. Finally, last but not least, vaccines for COVID. What is causing vaccine hesitancy for COVID in the autistic population? We know that autistic adults are at a higher mortality risk than those without autism. We know this over and over again, and agencies worked hard to move people with NDDs up the list when it came to vaccine priorities. So why are some people with autism still resistant? Well, I'll be honest with you, not a ton of them are resistant. 77% of autistic adults in Pennsylvania got a vaccine, which was actually higher than the state average of 55%. So on the whole, autistic adults and even kids are doing better than average. That's a great thing. But what about that other 23%? Why is that other 23% not getting vaccinated? Well, Lindsay Shea at Drexel and her colleagues at Penn State and Temple looked at some of these factors. What were factors increasing vaccination? Being lonely, wanting to get out into the world again, and having a sense of wanting to protect others from getting ill and being infected. People with autism do want social connections and are willing to work to get them. What were factors reducing vaccination? Well, actually, it was pretty much voting for Biden. Possibly some individuals are still hanging on to concerns about vaccine safety. So this is an area of further study and importance. There may be ways to mitigate these questions about vaccine safety through public service campaigns and health communications. Social stories were mentioned to be a powerful tool. And the authors mentioned the ASSERT collaborative who really stepped up to provide important information to the autistic community. Thank you to all of you, autistic adults and parents of autistic children who got vaccinated. You didn't just help yourself, you helped the whole community. Thanks for listening this week, and I'll talk to you next week on the 13th. Cool gym closed, don't touch these clothes. Need food, this blows. Line at Trader Joe's. At home gym fish, don't come close this way.